street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at MagnaBosco or on Facebook and YouTube at MagnaBosco210. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. So, Anthony, you are the street epistemologist guy. Uh, hey. What is street epistemology? I I kind of have a basic understanding, but from your words, how do you describe it? Oh, thanks for having me on your show, Steve. So, street epistemology is, is a, a conversational approach to investigating all sorts of different belief claims. It started with a book by Dr. Peter Boghossian, where he was encouraging people to use street epistemology with those who believe in gods and typically those the reasons why people believe in a god is because of faith but what we found from the nearly five years of having these talks is that you can use this method for pretty much any claim so people have taken his idea and run with it in exciting directions and it's it's interesting to see this method being applied to people who think that karma is real or that they've seen a ghost or their view on a political topic, for example, or some social issue. Some of the best conversations that I've had have been with atheists who are absolutely certain that there's a God. Uh, I had a couple talks a few weeks ago with a few people who thought that when you see a specific bird, that it's a deceased relative that's coming by to say hello. So SE is a way of engaging with a person without triggering the backfire effect and helping them reflect on how they form their belief. and, and questioning in a nice way how they could be so sure that it's true so it really is a, is a way to determine if that what they think or what they believe i should actually say um actually comports with reality in a way that they have some kind of epistemic certainty on a, on a scale like from zero to 100 pretty much pretty yeah, yeah the, the scale is optional you don't have to employ a scale but for those of us who want to see if this conversation is having any impact whatsoever on the person's certainty we do like to ask generally where a person is in terms of their confidence, one to 10, or I like to do zero to 100 to get a sense of how strong their belief, uh, their confidence is in that belief. And what's really interesting is that people will tend to lower their confidence, if not on the spot, days or weeks later after they had some time to think about it. Uh, I usually give people a card and it's not uncommon for people to message me or I'm, just, I'm able to see them again and have a follow-up and then they report a lowered confidence in whatever claim they thought is true. So this is, is this, a, this is a way to plant that seed of, of, of and I hate the word we use doubt, but it is kind of doubt in some ways. Oh, it I, is. It's a seed of doubt. Okay. I mean, there's no, I want to plant that seed of doubt. If somebody has an unreliable method for arriving at a truth, me telling them that you have an unreliable method is probably going to trigger a backfire effect. They'll be more defensive. But if they're able to discover it on their own from your questions, you are imparting the seed of, a seed of doubt or the gift of doubt, as I like to put it. And that's a good thing. It's beneficial to have doubt. It's beneficial to question the beliefs that we're forming because most people, I think, want to have an accurate map of reality. Yeah, I think I think that when we when we talk about beliefs, at least in the Great Debate community, and by the way, I do welcome you to the Great Debate community. We've been trying to arrange this for a while. People have been asking about this, so this is a huge thing. Um, I'm really enjoying going to enjoy this conversation, enjoying it now. So, 
the the whole thing about belief is a person not claiming knowledge, right? A person is just saying, I have this particular belief. Usually it's a propositional state. Um, I, I know that people love to get into the nuances of what is atheism. I think the conversation gets bogged down at that point. But mm. when you have a belief, you're saying that a proposition is true such that it comports with reality. There's a, there's a mapping feature that says, okay, this proposition is true that you believe it is in the universal sense. And, and not all propositions are like that. There's some fictitional propositions that that doesn't apply to. But you're trying to get a person to say, okay, um, is the belief that you're purporting to have something that actually does map to reality, correct? Pretty much. Now, I'll ask a person to select a belief that they think is true. And then when I ask them their confidence, they'll very often say 100%. I know that this belief is true. So... When I meet people, they're not using these these words in the philosophical manners. That they they often blur the lines between belief and and knowing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not academically trained in this. I'm Bogosian wrote this book for people I think exactly like me that give them a cursory understanding of what these words mean. Go out and have conversations with people and figure out if their method for getting to that belief to that certainty is reliable. So, but yeah, it is interesting how many people will say. No, I don't believe it. I know that this is true. Yeah, and, but, but Dr. the, the questioning is oh, not any different whether they say, yeah, I'm 80% sure that this belief is true or I'm 100% and I know that this thing is true. Do you, do you want to tell people about Dr. Pagosian? I mean, I, I, I understand that he does want to eliminate the, uh, the faith-based things. He wants to eliminate religion, I think. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with his reasoning behind a lot of things. Uh, I think that he's a little um, maybe pie in the sky at this point. I don't think religion is something that could just kind of go away. I think that over time, if if we keep on finding scientific reasons for things, then I think, yes, maybe maybe religion will be diminished over a period of time. But I don't think it's something that can be just eliminated outright. And he, I know he calls it the vi a virus, which I, mm. I think it's, it's inflammatory in some ways. But... Uh, you're, you, you, when I watch your videos, by the way, I've been watched, has been, 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 been watching. Try to say that five times fast. I was going to ask how many you watched. Oh, actually. I don't know, well over, a dozen to fifteen, maybe more, and maybe not yeah. just, not just those videos. I've also watched like you giving lectures and stuff like that. So, oh, good. I, so those, so Great. I probably about twenty plus videos in total. Um, the one that I just finished watching, the last one, you were giving a lecture, um, explaining the core properties of. Uh, SE and showing some videos and and you actually showed a video of you um, having a backfire effect and then saying two oh, years yeah. later you went back to that street preacher and I thought that was great I was like look at here you're showing how not to do something because obviously the the, the called the the backfire effect or called entrenchment effect which is somebody is going to be more likely to double down on their belief rather than open up and want to listen to what somebody has to say correct. Yeah, that's that's such a big premise of Bogosian's book. Yes, he he has some strong views on God believers and faith as a method for coming to a truth, and I think I share his concern about that as as I share his concern about faith as an epistemology because I think faith is unreliable. Just ask a person to define that word, go with their definition, and start asking questions, and it becomes pretty evident how unreliable faith is. But um, yeah, so the the major premise of street epistemology is to engage with a person about their belief, but avoid triggering that backfire effect, avoid triggering the defensive mechanisms that can come up if you ridicule somebody, if you if you give them counter arguments against their position, if you try to present them with facts. It seems so counterintuitive. You think, oh, if I, if I just show them, if I just show a person how mistaken they are and give them this report, 
they're going to change their mind, but it doesn't work that way. And street epistemology is a way of getting around those defensive mechanisms. So a person is honestly reflecting on the beliefs that they formed. And you do that by asking questions. I ask a lot of questions. I'm very rarely am I telling somebody what the facts are or even what my position is. I really want to try to remain neutral and not skew them one way or the other. You want to solicit information from them, not give them your perspective, right? This is this is trying to, to do a, some kind of Socratic method on their belief system, correct? Right. But I do recognize that at some point it could be rude to not answer their questions. So they might say, well, you're asking me all these questions about you know, why I think God is real. What do you think? Do you believe in a God? And I might say, well, if it's okay with you, can we just finish the next, you know, do five more minutes of me just asking you questions and I'll answer any question that you have. Because sometimes disclosing your view on a position, whether it's a political position or my view about cardinals coming back and representing deceased loved ones, or my view on the whole God thing, people can become defensive when they hear that I'm a non-believer and they may be less open to examining their belief. So there's a fine line. Like I don't want to sway them, but I also don't want to be a dick and just ignore all their com their questions to me. Right, you come so across as evasive if you do that. Yeah, it needs to, it doesn't need to be a conversation. It does need to be a back and forth. Yeah, I, I, okay. I mean, all cards on the table. I mean, my channel. Uh, I know you know a little bit of my channel, um, but my channel really was initially set up to just debunk younger creationism. However, I found that mm -hmm. there are several people in the community that do it far better than I do. <laughs> Not gonna lie, Apologia being one of them. Um, are you familiar with him? I've seen a few yeah, videos. Yeah, love Apologia. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, we have we have conversations. So my channel has now kind of evolved to the place to have conversations. Um, similarly to what you would have as a street epistemology thing, at least organic conversations. We have people like Dr. Hugh Ross on, Dr. Fuzz Rana, Mary Schweitzer. I mean, we have a prolific mm -hmm. amount of guests on. and But we also have people that, that we're not going to change our minds. And these, I admit that there's some kind of mockery there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the high road. I'm not going to say that we don't do that because I know that these people are not going to change their mind. There are only like a dozen of them at that point. It's just, there's no hope for them in my opinion. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to play this moral high ground where I, I think that every conversation has to be productive. Some of them it, just for entertainment value. This one okay, obviously is, that's is interesting. value. Are you having the debate though with people because you think your audience might there might be people in your audience who yes. may be convinced. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm doing it for the audience more than I am for the person because I, if I if I engage with somebody that I know is completely entrenched in younger creationism and they tell me literally, there's no evidence you could provide to me they'll ever get me to accept evolutionary theory or that the Noah's Ark mm. wasn't real. Okay, fine, I accept that. At that point, I'm not going to try to 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 do anything to change their mind, but I want people in the audience to see here's a person um, that is just not willing to to reformulate their belief structure or their epistemology to comport what we know to be scientifically correct. And I do mm. state that as facts. I'm, I'm not uh, ambivalent about that. I, when I say that the age of the earth is factually billions of years old, I mean that, right? Um, and I'm not, I have no hesitation. But anyways, look who just dropped in, you know, Ozzy. Hello, sir. You got, you got to do the Ozzy, like uh, the clouds have parted. Anyways, no, he's, What's up, it's, just, it's just Oz. Welcome, Ozzy. Glad you made it. Thank you. Yeah, that's not at all embarrassing as an introduction. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's okay. We just oh, got started. He's already oh, can I just mention one thing? Uh, can I just mention one thing, Steve, that you just said? Yes, please. To adjust that? Uh, you talked about still, yeah, you talked about still engaging with people, even though you suspect that they're going to probably not change their minds, but you know that an audience is watching. And I completely understand that 
being aggressive and debating with somebody, presenting them with facts, even though it may not change their mind, they're going to be defensive. There is a benefit to have people observing that and changing their mind. The disconnect, though, is that I think a lot of atheists watch that. They watch your discussion with somebody who's being obstinate and you're providing them with facts. And they think, oh, that's the way that I need to talk to my aunt the next time she tells me about a young earth. Right. And I that's, that's, that's the, the disconnect problem. that concerns right. me because it seems like that is not the best approach when you want to have a one-on-one. -on -one. If, you, if you truly value the relationship and you do want to help a person reflect on their belief, it seems like the Socratic approach of street epistemology in a one-on-one -on -one appears to be more effective than just presenting my aunt with evidence about in old earth, for example. I absolutely agree with that. Um, each situation obviously is different. I mean, there are, I shouldn't say that no one's without hope. I mean, there have been people that have reversed their positions. Wayne Fillmore, I had a debate with him on evolution and it was on macroevolution. And literally two hours later, he looked up what I told him to look up and he came back and said, you know what, Steve, um, you're right. Macroevolution does exist. Um, I have to question some things now. He took about a month I mean, oh, he just awesome. kind of separated from like all of us. He did his thing and he came back and he's like, you know what? I can no longer accept young earth creationism. Wow. And okay. That's interesting. Yeah. That's pretty rare. I, I don't hear a rare, lot of that. Rare, rare. I've had, I've had two or three limited successes with that, with people that mm -hmm. actually given it up, but you're right. Um, the approach that you would take with somebody one-on-one -on -one, or especially with families, a lot different than some of the approaches we take with some of the people that, that come in that are just um, hardened to the fact that their belief is unequivocally correct and they start with that presupposition right they, they start there they cannot be wrong that's a lot that's a very difficult position to to kind of chink away at don't you think mm -hmm. yeah i think so um and i've used the old i've used the de the debate slash aggressive ridicule approach with family and i've i've jeopardized those relationships almost to the point where we barely talk and it's one of the reasons why i i've invested a lot of my time and interest in se because uh, I've seen relationships get repaired because of this this more Socratic approach of questioning. I hear from atheists all the time. I just got a message this morning. I should read it saying, uh, I've learned SE and it's making me a better person because I, I know I, I'm, I'm more comfortable with my views. I'm more respectful of the person I'm talking to. I see them more as victims of a faulty epistemology as opposed to just an, an, idiot, an idiot that I need to crush with data. So it seems uh, that you know maybe the unsung benefit of SE could be the the benefit that it seems to have on atheists who are learning this method and it's improving their relationships. Yeah, and I think that's one thing I, I will bring up real quick since we have Ozzy in here um, about atheists arguing better. And I I had spoken to you before on this, and I and I hope Ozzy will agree with me that we want atheists to become better interlocutors. Um, I don't, I, I kind of get annoyed when I see an atheist making a bad argument more than I do a theist. And I, I don't know why, but there's some reason why I would think, I think that, look, if an atheist accepts science, and atheists generally do, not all of them, but I, I, I agree, admit there are spiritual atheists, there's non-metaphysical naturalist atheists, there's all kinds of atheists. But for the most part, most of the atheists I know accept things like their evolution, Big Bang cosmology, those things. So I think they're they're at least ahead of the curve as far as a young earth creationist, right? And so when I see them take those steps to say, okay, this is this these theories are correct, they 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 model what we think to be reality, and then they make some really horrific argument to a theist, it just for some reason kind of sticks in my craw.
And I, I don't know how Ozzy feels about that, but Ozzy, do you kind of know what I'm saying on that? That is it, is it weird for me to think that I th think that an atheist should have a better argument than a theist? I probably am wrong on that. It should be equal, but I think they all should have good arguments. But well, I, I think we all have a vested interest in people whose views resemble our own <laughs> coming off as rational, right? I mean, I I don't sort of go around um, uh, identifying as an atheist. I, I wear the label because it's descriptive. It, it describes my position, so I call myself an atheist. But I don't go around say you know say hi, you know I'm Aussie and I'm an atheist. <laughs> I don't go around doing that. But when people ask me my position, I tell them what my position is. I'm an atheist, and if they ask me what I mean by that, I say, well, I don't think there are any gods, and here's why. If you care. Um, and it's, it's always a little bit embarrassing when there's someone out there who wears the same label, whether they mean the same thing by it or not, who is arguing poorly for uh, that position. Um, even if it's not exactly your position, if they're wearing the same label, you end up getting tarred by the same brush. Um, uh, I just heard a funny noise. Am, am I still being heard or yes. am I frozen? No, yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, so... I mean, I, I feel exactly the same way you do, Steve. When I when I hear um, a fundamentalist uh, evangelical, uh, you know, engaged in a lot of bad apologetics and bad reasoning, um, it, it it doesn't it doesn't impinge on me. It 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 discredits them and anyone else who'd wear the label that they want to wear. It doesn't reflect badly on me. But you know, because we. Um, we don't want to be tarred with the same brush. Uh, obviously, we, we care when people who are on our side, who, I, who wear the same kinds of labels that we do, it can be a political label, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, whatever, you just don't like it when people who wear the same label are arguing poorly for your position. Um, so, yeah, I, it does bother me. And so, uh, actually, most of my efforts since I've become involved in, in YouTube and a great debate has been sort of trying to... Uh, help my fellow atheists sort of up their game a little bit, avoid certain bad counter-apologetics, and um, uh, embracing better counter-apologetics, uh, not shirking the burden of justification for their position, and, and you know, engaging in moves that I, I think uh, reflect badly on us. And it, it wouldn't matter too much for me, even, even, even the fact that we sort of share the same labels, it wouldn't bother me too much, except that there's such a stereotype when it comes to atheism. There's the, there's the stereotype of the atheist who is angry and rebellious against God and hates the religious and stuff like that. We're all, those of us who are non-believers, uh, we're laboring under this stereotype. And a way to dismantle that stereotype is, at, at the very least, to not live up to it, you know, to not go around uh, fuming and uh, trash-talking the religious uh, saying that they're all systematically irrational, uh, that, uh, that it's a mental illness and, and things like that, and using, adopting the any old counter argument will do when it comes to atheism, right? So if, if you can avoid uh, uh, discrediting this side of the fence, uh, then, then I think that that's wonderful. So most of my own efforts have been um, uh, very similar to what Anthony is, is doing. It, I haven't been doing anything called street epistemology. In fact, I'm actually fairly uh, new to this venture. Um, but I have for a number of years now, because of my background in philosophy and my own interest in epistemology, been interested in getting people to be able to recognize a good argument from a bad argument. Uh, so my, my view uh, is the best way to sort of deconvert people, if that's sort of your, your end game, or at least 
a part of your uh, of, of your objective is to just get people to reason better when people reason better when they they think more deeply about how they arrive at their beliefs when they think of their beliefs as a product of a process and they re recognize that some of these processes some of these inferential practices are reliable and conduce to the truth and some are not when you get people thinking that way uh, then that had that sort of that has a kind of system-wide effect in their in their in their belief system. Uh, there's a lot of compartmentalization that goes on. There are people who are exquisitely rational in, in in work and in their social lives, and yet when it comes to the subject of religion or politics or something like that, they might be um, heavily in the grips of an ideology, and it's as if their reasoning process is off, is offline. And it's not because they're systematically irrational, because they're perfectly rational in every other aspect of their life. It's, it's that we compartmentalize. We simply think that, that we've got the truth in our back pocket in this domain. We don't need to think very critically about how we arrive at our beliefs. Uh, and uh, if you can get people thinking in terms of epistemic responsibilities, you have a, a responsibility, if only to yourself, never mind any other interlocutors out there, but just to yourself, Right. If you're in the, in the in the business of having a belief at all, thinking something is true, then surely you have a stake in it actually being true. And what are the methods? What are the tried and true methods um, for arriving at true beliefs? And why are you not applying those when it comes to your religious beliefs or your political beliefs or whatever? So, as I see it, uh, reasoning is is a uh, is something that is a skill. It's acquired, and we sometimes one of the things that we acquire is a sense of when we need to apply it and when it doesn't matter, when some beliefs are immune to, to reason. And you can dismantle that. You can get a person in the, in the course of a conversation to recognize that, you know, they're, they're, they're playing a, a kind of weird game uh, of insulating a certain set of their beliefs from the critical faculties that they would deploy in every other circumstance. And you can show the inconsistency in that. And I think that's what street epistemology does. And that, that's sort of what one of the things that I've been trying to do for for a number of years. So my, my, a lot of my own project and interests in the great debate line up with street epistemology, because as I see it, street epistemology is about having very, very natural conversations, open-ended conversations, where you try to get a person to recognize that the epistemological standards that they're applying uh, are, are not, be, that they normally apply, are not being applied in the case of certain um, very, very um, deep-seated beliefs to which people feel very emotionally invested and strongly wedded. And if you can get them to realize, hey, wait a minute, shouldn't be doing that, um, then they will go away and continue thinking about it generally. Not always, but very often they will continue thinking about it. And you, you can plant a seed that way. And you, you, you can, I sort of see reason as a kind of corrosive acid. Reasoning works slowly. You don't usually, in the, in the course of a single conversation, change anybody's mind very, very rapidly. You might get some concessions out of it if you if you approach them diplomatically, and I think street epistemology, uh, as it's practiced by Anthony here, actually does work that way. He, he, I think he in fact manages to get a lot of concessions out of people because of his tact and, and diplomatic manner and open-endedness. Uh, it's it's a, it's not it's a confrontational method, but it's not it's not a combative method. Um, and I think if you can do that, you can you can you can sort of find cracks where you can pour in that corrosive acid of good reasoning where then it continues to act so that when you're no longer having that conversation with them, they have this sense that, yeah, you know, I really ought to be thinking about this differently. I ought to be applying the same epistemological standards 
my religious or political beliefs or whatever, uh, as I would to any other belief. Um, and I, I, I think that's all to the good when that happens. Is, is that what you kind of see when you do these essays, Anthony, that, um, that uh, you're basically, I, see, I don't think faith is a reliable mechanism for, for truth making i i just don't i don't see that as well not, not everyone uses faith for their for their god belief or other beliefs uh I, well i have heard people say that they use faith to know that it was a god it was a ghost in their kitchen squeaking a cabinet but sometimes a person's epistemology is it it i feel that it's true a visceral it's thing. a feeling i get that from mormons a lot um but i just a couple points i wanted to hit on before we progress yeah i i see se as a tool so when i have a conversation with somebody yes i want to i want to impart that corrosive uh goo <laughs> so that it sticks with them and they think about it and, and marinates on their belief but i also want to entice them with the conversational tool that we just that they just experienced I would love it if and if I had people expressed interest like what if, what are you doing again because that was really fun I've never had such a great conversation before like that and I tell them about street epistemology and then they want to learn it because like one guy was was going on about how he has a friend who is a Jehovah's Witness who wanted him to switch religions and he says I'm I'm going to ask him how 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 do I know that? How does he know that that's true? And he was really enamored with the method. So so uh, this is about imparting a tool set to people. Uh, you know, not just questioning a person's belief and planting a seed, but giving them a tool so that they can use this to challenge all sorts of beliefs that they hold and the beliefs of the people around them. Um, just very quickly on the whole atheist stereotype thing, like uh, when 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 people see videos of atheists having respectful conversations with believers, they're somewhat taken aback. Now I've been doing this for five years and there are other people uploading content, but there's still not a lot of really cordial conversations going on between the two. Um, Ozzy, I've noticed you a couple of years ago and I was taken aback when I saw how respectful you were of, you know, talking to the believers like, wow, that's really interesting. It, it was an anomaly. And, and I think that the more that we engage with believers in a cordial manner and we question their beliefs and we, we open our, ourselves up to the same types of questions that uh, it's going to be harder for theists to dismiss us. It's easy to dismiss an angry atheist. Uh, they're just irrational. Why would I want to talk to them? They just want to sin. But if you're willing to have a conversation and you can be polite, it's much harder for somebody to, it, it's easier to, to let's say that there's a, a Christian forum, right? And there's an atheist just leaving all sorts of horrible comments on there. Moderators tend to leave those on there because they want that stereotype. They want that anger to be visible. But if you go to a forum and you have a cordial conversation, I've seen this per, uh, firsthand, they will often just remove those those very cordial probing conversations because those are the threats. And then uh, I just one thing about Ozzy, like I would love it. Ozzy, we were just talking about this before you joined, but it, I think you, you've had a big impact on the atheist community. And I think it would be neat if somebody were to one day like make a video about the the challenges that you've posed to atheists and, and the impact that you've, that you've had. Um, but yeah, I, all in all, like I, I think that SE is a really interesting tool set and a really great way of challenging people's beliefs, including my own. Do you want to address that real quick? Yeah, I just wanted to add to something that you were saying, Anthony, about, about not discrediting yourself. But one of the things that, that goes on in, in, in the great debate is um, 
typically religious people, especially people of, of the monotheistic faiths, like to think of themselves as living in the kingdom of morality. We own morality. That's the, that, that's our province. Meanwhile, the non-believers out there like to think of themselves as living in the kingdom of reason, right? We are the skeptics. We are the rational ones, right? Uh, we're the ones who are the, the, the science boosters, and you're all, you know, science denying fundamentalists and stuff like that. Um, but, I mean, if you want to be uh, seen as a proponent of, of skepticism and rationality and scientific values, you have to sort of walk uh, the talk. It's not enough to just say that you're a rational person and all those believers out there are irrational by your lights. You have to appear rational. If you don't, if you lose your cool every time you're in a discussion with a religious person, because they say something that strikes you as just mind-numbingly stupid and ill-informed. If, if, right, if every time you have that experience, right? And we've all had that experience talking to someone, right? Happens both ways, but, by the way. But if, if you lose your cool whenever that happens uh, and you start ranting and raving and, and name-calling, then you don't look like you're from the kingdom of reason. You know, on the contrary, you look like someone who's not self-possessed. You don't look like someone who's capable of... Uh, dispassionately examining another person's beliefs. Um, so you, we discredit ourselves when we do this, right? So I think it's important to try to model, whenever possible, uh, good behavior. Now, there are two reasons to do this. Uh, we, right now, we've been talking about the, the strategic reason. The strategic reason is, look, don't discredit yourself. Don't look like you're, you are, in fact, arguing out of uh, a, a hatred of God and a hatred of the religious or something like that. Right, you you need you need to be modeling um, a, a more Spock-like um, uh, uh, demeanor. It doesn't mean that you have to be cold and bloodless or anything like that. I mean, people who see me in discussions know that I, I try to be polite, but I get I get heated. <laughs> um, I, I will raise my voice. I'll talk faster. I'll I'll overtalk another person sometimes. Right? I lose my cool too. It happens to, to to all of us. But to the extent that one is capable of it, one should be fairly uh, restraints to at least model the kind of epistemological attitude we're trying to recommend. Otherwise, you're involved in a kind of performative contradiction. You're saying this is how we ought to proceed in evaluating beliefs, but then when you confront a belief that just seems like completely off the wall, you know, talk to a flat earther or something like that, or uh, a young earth creationist, and you just can't believe what you're hearing, and you respond with incredulity and insults, you're not modeling the behavior that you're you're supposed to be uh, recommending. So that's a performative contradiction. It, it, and and so it's, it's hard for the people that you would like to impress, even an onlooker, to take you seriously. Um, but that, So that's the strategic reason. But then there's another reason. I think there's a more a deeper moral reason. Um, I, I try to be polite in my conversations, even when, when people are insulting me, in part because I just believe in the value of civility. I think that there are, there are norms of rational discourse, but, but part of the norms of rational discourse um, are norms of civility, norms of civil discourse. You have to be civil, and that, that means you have, to, you have to apply the principle of intellectual charity. You have to try to credit the other person with at least as much intelligence as you have. They might not have as much education. They might not be as knowledgeable in a particular domain, but don't assume that they're stupid. Right? Try, try to assume in an argument that they, however they arrived at the, this misbegotten belief as you see it, that they arrive there honestly, okay, and that they're not lying to you, right? They may be in the grips of an ideology, 
Um, uh, but nevertheless, it, it's not going to um, ad advance your, your own agenda um, or talk them out of what they believe uh, by approaching them as if you think that they're stupid and being condescending. And so try not to be condescending. Now, we all do it. We all step into it. I do it too. But I, I try not to. And so I think there's a deeper moral reason here. Uh, and, and that is civility is important. I mean, I mean there's, there's, there's violence, there's power, and then there's talk, right? And if you're going to sort of make strides in the world and, in, and improve the world, um, uh, talk is the way to go. And as I see it, when you're engaged in civil discourse, it disarms the other person. When you're being civil and they're being uncivil, not, not only does it look really bad in front of to everyone else who's, who's looking, but the other person starts to feel frustrated, right? Um, and they sense the hypocrisy in, in their own position. Um, and, and you're not being exposed as a kind of hypocrite engaged in a kind of performative contradiction. So I, I think just sort of at a, at a, at a, at a deeply moral level, it, it makes sense to try to be civil in a discussion. Civil discourse and rational discourse is something that sort of, it ups everybody's game. It, it edifies you, it edifies the other person, it edifies anyone who's an onlooker or a listener. Uh, and anyway, well, I'll stop there. There's a bit more to say on that, but that's, that's enough for now. <laughs> I, th I think I agree with a lot of that. Uh, yeah, very often when I'm having talks with people, they, I ask them about their God belief and they're, they're, they get really agitated. But if I, if I can meet them here and be calm, they usually come down and they meet me at that calm level. If I ratchet it up, they're going to go higher and I'm going to go higher and it just gets, it gets out of control. Um, that being said, I do think that there are a lot of atheists that are justified in being angry they were likely taught things that were not true. They've, they've su suffered a lot of trauma. And I, I get emails, messages from people all the time that are grateful for having learned SE, but they're still struggling with that anger when they see a person that's holding a belief that they used to hold. Or you know, the parents that taught them this are no longer around. So they have nowhere to direct that anger. So they direct it at the next person that shares that same belief that they were taught. And uh, it just, just so happens I'm, I'm days away from releasing a blog post that talks about how to remain calm when you're having these types of discussions. And I don't get into so much the benefits of it, like, like uh, Ozzy just uh, elucidated there, but uh, there are a lot of things that a person can do to try to remain calm because the, the benefit of it far outweighs the, uh, that, that little bit of benefit that you might get from raging on somebody some people really need it and they need to have that release but it causes so much damage yeah you know and i definitely agree that uh the polite discourse is mostly the way to go there's no question about that um but what, what do you say to the militant atheist types because i i mean i gotta tell you as an agnostic i i get flack from both sides i'm not gonna lie i mean it, and i find that most of it comes from the atheist community and even though i side with the atheist community on pretty much pretty much almost everything. I mean, as far as like, you know, science and things of that nature, it's just epistemic reasons why I, I adhere to agnosticism, purely epistemic reasons, but they, they will leave the most visceral comments more so than theists. Sometimes they'll, they'll just be on this attack. Well, you know, Steve, you know, why, you know, how could you be an atheist, blah, blah, blah. And just be visceral about it. Not just Socratic, but visceral. 
and their in their in the way of their attacking my particular position. And of course, they don't want to 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 learn anything new. I mean, I could point out to things to them they don't want to understand anything they don't bother to, to even say they they care about philosophy and yet they're engaged in philosophical discussions they'll say things like i don't have beliefs um i things weird things to me right because we all Wait, have are, you, are you giving this from other atheists or theists this is actually from the atheist side so what, what do you say okay. to the atheist community when they have the just the, the i understand they have the right to be angry sometimes no no question um especially young earth creationists they obviously were relied to but well, I have some thoughts on that. Yes, um, please. I, I wouldn't just go. I wouldn't just go out and tell people because if you were to tell them, "Hey, what you're doing is harmful," again, you're going to probably run into that backfire effect. I would engage with them. You can use SE. You can use Socratic questioning on what uh, what is their objective for one thing. Their objective may not be the same as yours. They may not give a shit about helping other people. They just want to tear somebody down because they feel better about it, and it it helps them at some deeper level. Um, if that's their goal, then that's their goal. But if their goal is to help somebody, usually when when a person engages in a debate or an argument with somebody, they're doing so because they want to correct that that other person's view of reality. They may just not know that there are better tools uh, at their disposal. Um, and and it might just be a matter of modeling the behavior, like Ozzy was talking about earlier, but modeling it for other atheists. Show them a video of an atheist having a cordial conversation with a believer, and that believer being stunned because they've just discovered that they have a, a, a faulty a faulty foundation for their belief. That could be a real eye-opener for a militant atheist. Uh, and again, atheists can be very justified in being angry, but we just have to recognize the fallout from doing so. I had a thought on uh, angry atheists. Um, uh, a lot of people know that I was a, a fundamentalist growing up. And I tumbled out of my faith in my, you know, mid to late adolescence. So by the time I was a, a young adult, I, I was a self-described uh, atheist. Um, and, you know, there was some back and forth there for a while. But by the time I self-identified explicitly as uh, an atheist, um, I was feeling pretty angry about religion. And so I, I can sympathize. I remember rather vividly <laughs> what it was like to be angry at the religious. Um, and, I, and I think I have a, a, an idea why a lot of atheists are angry, especially those atheists, um, I'm speaking specifically now, those atheists who, who were themselves religious in, in the grips of, of something like fundamentalism as I was. When you shift out of a, a, an almost totalizing worldview, right, whether it's a political ideology or in this case a religious ideology, um, uh, it, it's difficult. It's painful. There's a lot at stake, right? Because I mean, when I was I was a fundamentalist. Uh, I was a Jehovah's Witness, and that belief system didn't just tell me what was going to happen after I died, what the future was going to hold. It told me how I ought to live day to day. It told me who who I should have as friends, who I could have as friends, and who I absolutely could not have as friends, and how I ought to treat people. And uh, what kind of spouse I should seek, you know, and as you know, when I was a teenage boy, I was all as girl crazy as any, any uh, typical boy was, you know, I, I had to sort of make discriminations between the kinds of girls that I would pursue and the kinds of girls that I would not pursue and stuff like that. It, it affected every aspect of my life. Okay. Uh, so when I gave up that religious outlook, 
everything seemed to have to go with it. Everything that I thought was true, all of my values were at stake. Okay. So it was extremely consequential. Okay. It wasn't something as abstract as do we live on an old earth or a young earth? It was nothing. I mean, that was inconsequential compared to the, these other questions. And uh, so as the confidence in my faith was crumbling beneath me, I was struggling to hang on to it. And I was engaging in apologetics. Okay, now I was a, I was a young man and there was no internet at the time. It was rather difficult to find apologetical sources and, and stuff like that. So I wasn't you know, a very serious apologist by, by any stretch, but I was engaged in my own private effort at apologetics, at shoring up the belief system that I had embraced and which I was firmly wedded, but which I was now increasingly finding dubious. And so there comes a point when you start falling out of your faith like this, where you are no longer arguing honestly for your faith. There comes a point where you're about to give it up. And that can, that can be fairly prolonged, uh, a period where you don't actually believe the justifications coming out of your own mouth. You, 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 just, you are now professing to believe things that you no longer feel very confident in, and you're not even confident of the apologetics that you're putting forward, right? But I mean, it's, it's kind of like clinging by your fingernails, okay? That can go on for a long time. For some people, if, I mean, if you've been religious your whole life or much of your life as an adult and you've raised your children in a religion and stuff like that, and then you lose your faith, that period of hanging on for dear life can go on for years, right? When you finally let go, you're going to look back at that with some embarrassment you're going to be a little bit ashamed of yourself right it might not even occur to you that you are ashamed of yourself but you're going to be a little embarrassed at, at what you used to believe and how badly you argued and in what bad faith you argued that you are arguing for something in bad conscience and i think what happens with a lot of atheists one of the things that informs their their anger that motivates their anger is that they remember very well putting forward arguments insincerely dishonestly as they were tumbling out in the final stages and what i think happens is a lot of us then project that onto everyone who is putting forward those apologetical moves and we think they too must be arguing in bad faith that they don't believe those apologetics right that they know those aren't the reasons why they believe and they know darn well that they're not convincing and no one should believe right why do they think that? Because they know that they themselves went through that. But it's, that's, that is a mistake. It is a mistake. That is, that is projection. That, that's, a, that's a fundamental attribution error. There. You're assuming that the people who are putting out the same kinds of arguments that you are putting out are motivated exactly as, as, as you were, that they're at the same kind of stage as you are, uh, and that they don't believe the words coming out of their mouths. Look, there are apologists out there who I, I am confident are do not believe the apologetics they're putting out. But there's a lot of people out there um, you know, who are apologists or who are just sitting in church pews repeating um, the apologetics of professional apologists, and they sincerely believe it, right? Just because I wasn't believing it when I was saying it doesn't mean that they, they're all being dishonest. And so what ends up happening is a lot of atheists are angry because they remember all too well the bullshit that they were believing in or professing to believe in that they didn't really believe in and that they were being disingenuous when they were putting this forward. And then they project that onto everybody. And that I think is uncharitable and simply mistaken, 
right? Uh, and, and, and that, I think, explains not just a lot of the anger that people feel that they got duped and stuff like that, that they were lied to when they might have been merely been misinformed by people who sincerely believed what, what, what they passed along to them, but they feel that the people are actively um, lying all the time when they put forward their, their apologetics. And so this contributes not just to anger at the religion, but it contributes to a feeling of contempt and disrespect towards the religious. They have to know that they're lying, right? And I hear some people say that, Aaron Ra, for instance, I, he often talks about ap apologists as, as liars. And I, you know, many of them are, but I don't think that most of them are. I think the minority of them are lying. And, uh, and I think a lot of that is projection. We remember what it was like and we project it on. And, and why wouldn't we remember it that way? It's the last experience we had as atheists before we tumbled out of our faith. We remember vividly, dishonestly professing things and putting forward arguments disingenuously. And then I think we sort of then project that uh, onto everyone. So that I think is a mistake. And, and if we could sort of rid ourselves of that tendency of feeling disrespect and contempt for the religious when they put forward apologetics that seem to us hilarious, it would go a long way um, to being more charitable and um, advancing the agenda that, that you have. But I don't think a lot of people, a lot of theists put forth arguments disingenuously. I don't think a lot of them are dishonest. I, I obviously, I point to many of them, which I do think are dishonest, but I think the vast majority don't. And I don't think Anthony may know this, but I, I know you do, Ozzy, but my, my, my upbringing wasn't really religious but i joined the mormon church when i was 17 so and um i was never really true that active but um i i did the apologetics for for several years even in the navy um a couple of people actually joined the church um but later on um and i would say in pretty much the last four or five years um i've had to 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 look at my, the the beliefs i had to look and see am i compartmentalizing um, I, I see problems that exist in the archaeology of the, of the Book of Mormon. I see problems in the church itself engaging in um, stepping into politics, saying, you know, we're going to donate money for propositions against gay marriage. Bishops asking 12-year-olds about their masturbation, you know, things that they do. And I was like, I'm like, abhorred by this. I'm like, this should never, never happen. This is as bad to me as, you know, the Catholic scandals. Of, of, of You don't ask a 12-year-old, if they masturbate, I don't. I don't think a bishop has any right to do that. And I, these things that, that I found out about the the LDS Church, and it, there's a there's a thing called uh, Evergreen, which is a reparative uh, therapy, a reparate. What's what's called reparative therapy, where they try to take people that are gay and supposedly make them straight using unapproved, un, un um, uh, tested types of, of, of means, which. Again, don't work. I mean, if you look at the data, that none of these people have ever changed their sexuality. I don't think that people change from being, oh, I'm going to be gay one day and not gay the next day. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so I had to look at it as a whole and say, if these are the practices of the LDS Church, you know, it is something that I, I still want to be associated with, right? So, I mean, I don't longer consider myself to be Mormon, even though I'm technically on the, uh, the, the what do they call the, the list, the doles, the roles. But I, I had to do that myself. And even though I have a lot of respect for the LDS, I think the LDS are great people. I, I, that's what bothers me when people attack the people of the LDS church. I've known LDS that I grew up with. They are some of the most warm, generous, greatest people I've ever met in my entire life. But I have to question the theology of it because even though there's a lot about LDS theology, I actually kind of think it's pretty cool. 
the bigger picture is I can't I can't compartmentalize. I have to apply the same standard I do towards Young Earth creationists or anything else toward the LDS theology as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, I, after having all these conversations with people, and I just met Mormons uh, about three weeks ago on the trail. Wonderful couple. And and the more conversations that I have with believers, and especially when I'm using this using SE, uh, I definitely can distance. I can separate the belief from the person, and and even ask questions in a way that encourages them to do so. Like stand over here and let's look at your belief together, and. And I can see people as people, and they're just holding these beliefs that they formed, maybe because they were never given the tools to critically think, or they were they were raised with this belief and they've never questioned it whatsoever. They've never considered what there is to back up this belief or what would change their mind. And and I, I have such a sympathy now for believers. Um, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. It's a lot of people think, oh, you're just, uh, you're pitying them or something, but um, I could very easily see my. In fact, I may even have beliefs right now that I'm absolutely sure are true that may not be, and that's a very humbling thing. It's in fact, I think it's a liberating thing when you realize that uh, that we're all walking around with these beliefs that may not be true, and then once you start to recognize that this is a human design flaw, possibly that that this is just something that human brains do. Okay, don't freak out on the word design, but this is just something I think human brains do. We're all susceptible to it. And once you recognize that, I have a tremendous amount more respect for people who hold these beliefs. And it, it takes a lot these days to to trigger me when I talk to an arrogant apologist, for example, because I, I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that if I was raised in a very similar way and exposed to these ideas, I could very well be in that person's shoes. Yeah, I like, I like the fact that you brought up that word design. Um, you know, this is discussions that, that we've had in the past here that I've actually said, I, I find it kind of rubs me the wrong way when I see atheists avoid certain words. They seem to want to avoid words like faith, belief, and design. And I'm like, why? Take these words back. They word, These words have meanings to them. Um, <laughs> just like community or, or morality. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Re not religious don't have a lock from. on these things. But you do have to be sensitive to how people can take a word like that and run and sure. say, Anthony, just you, there's probably even comments about it right now about how I use the word design. So you have to be, you do have to be careful about words, words, uh, people can take them and run with them. Uh, so that's why I was so quick to, to clarify at the start. But absolutely. But yeah, By I mean, using it though, I'm okay using, using it words. contextually the way you did and explaining it, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I believe that things are designed, um, you know, even biologically designed, but that doesn't imply a teleological explanation. You can have a perfectly teleonomic uh, situation where things are designed by, by nature or apparently you know, designed at least, have the appearance of it. But I, I don't have a problem with that word design. And I think that the ID movement have kind of hijacked it to mean a very specific thing, right? They, they want ID, they want the word design and ID to mean very specifically something designed by a disembodied type of, of intelligence, correct? And I and I think that 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 I could I could use that word differently just as, as well and not have to to be wary of using that word in 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 general parlance and and have somebody pop up and say oh look Steve thinks everything's designed he must be an idealist mm -hmm. you know Oz, Ozzy said something earlier I think and correct me if I'm mistaken but I think you said Ozzy that you don't you don't think that apologists were li are lying that many of them actually do believe it and if that's the case. I wanted to get your sense on whether you think that your typical apologist is questioning or doubting more than they let on. Uh, well, 
my hunch is with some that they are that because some of the their their efforts seem a little desperate um but let, let's let's distinguish between uh apologists sincerity with respect to their doctrines and their apologetics right we all of us have things that we believe to be true and then we have arguments that we uh, put forth in defense of those things that we think are true and very often what the thing that we think is true let's say you have a moral conviction or a political conviction um and you might genuinely in fact very strongly um affirm that position but you might also be putting forward arguments in support of that position, which you, yeah, I'm a little bit weak. I don't, I don't know how convinced I am of that, but I'll put it forward anyway. So I, I think that it's irrelevant. The point is they might not accept it, even though it's part of what they're supposed to accept. So there'll be things that they actually sincerely believe um, uh, as part of their faith that are part of the uh, Catholic doctrine. And then there will be other things that they, are supposed to profess that they don't in fact profess, they just don't think are true. Actually merely profess them. Sometimes the people will nod along, they'll go, well, yeah, if that's part of the faith, then I guess I gotta believe it. And they don't actually believe it. They're confessing right then and there that they don't believe it. They're confessing, I, I must profess to believe it. I don't believe it, but I must profess to believe it, okay? So the, th those are things, think of those as sort of first order beliefs about the faith, okay? But then there are all the reasons, the justifications that you might give for those things, whether you genuinely believe them or profess to believe them, right? Or merely profess to believe them, right? They're, they're apologetics. And now some of the apologetics you might find convincing, and some of them you might not. For instance, I think that a lot of, of theists genuinely believe that the world is a creation. It's an articulated by an intelligent mind, okay? And one of the reasons that they think it's true is they find the cosmological argument compelling. Look, it couldn't have just happened something had to start it. it you know it couldn't have gone on and on, on backwards into infinity the universe appears to have some kind of beginning they think from physics therefore something had to sort of touch off this big bang right and it couldn't have been in the universe because then it would be part of the universe or you know so if we're talking about the beginning of the universe and the beginning of time there had to have been some kind of maternity and something that could cause it so they find the cosmological argument in convincing and then they might also find something like the um a teleological argument convincing an argument from design there's all this order and perfection and beauty and harmony and regularity and patternicity this can't have just happened as they see it by some undirected process so they find a, a design or teleological argument compelling they might not be very committed to the particular design argument that they're putting forward that they've heard somewhere that they're just repeating they might not have a lot of confidence in that specific formulation of the argument but they think that something like that has got to be right there's something fundamentally right about this argument, right? And they can't shake it. So are they, are they being disingenuous? Well, I think they're being um, quite genuine when they, find, when they say that, that they see the world as designed and then must have a designer, an intelligent designer. I think they're sincere when they say that. But very often when they put forward a, a particular formulation, they can be convinced by it, right? Uh, but then there will be others who will be convinced by it. They'll think, hey, you know what? This formula of the, you know, like, a, you know, Paley watch argument or something, that analogy, you know, um, they might find that completely convincing, absolutely straightforward. It ought to be rationally compelling to anyone who hears it. And they're baffled why someone like me isn't impressed with it. Right. So um, uh, apologists, do I think that sometimes they have doubts? Yeah, I think a lot of them have. Uh, misgivings, but it doesn't mean that they actually question their faith. 
And it doesn't mean that they question that the line of argument is more or less right. I think that they often have a lot of questions about the specifics, the formulation of the argument. Right? For instance, and Craig believes um, in the doctrines of his faith, and I, I think he believes very sincerely um, uh, that the cosmological argument is a good one. I don't know how convinced he is that his own formulation of the cosmological argument is a good one. I think that when he starts talking about, you know, the, 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 the cause must be, you know, spaceless and, you know, and, and so forth, I, I think he's got to know, given the state of his education, um, that, and this is the best formulation that, that he can come up with. Is he completely convinced that, that, it's, that it's right? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. So, but, but that's not, you, you can't sort of say, well, look, if, he, if, he, if he's not completely convinced by it, he shouldn't be putting it forward. Look, I have political positions that I hold and, and I feel them very strongly. I think they're true. I think they're absolutely true. Um, they strike me as manifestly true sometimes. And then I will put forward reasons and arguments. I'll talk about statistics. I'll talk, you know, I'll invoke economic principles and stuff like that in support of some of my, of my political beliefs, right? And I'm nowhere near as confident of the reasons for my, uh, my belief as I am for the belief itself, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, a disconnect between my level of confidence uh, and in my belief and the level of confidence in the arguments for the very belief, right? Mm -hmm. That shouldn't happen. A perfectly rational agent wouldn't do that. Your, your confidence would get scaled down and the arguments for that belief are not so high. Hey, Ozzy, real right? quick. What uh, you I, want. I, 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 I can interrupt. Yeah. We, have, we have a lot of buffering. I'm just going to take three seconds to restart the, the, the feed real quick. If you just pause for just one second, it's going to take me literally sure. four seconds to restart. I'm just going to change the bit right down. But I have to stop it. Uh, yeah, I just want to finish that, 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 that the, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's there. So, when you, when, uh, Anthony, when you say, you know, do I think that the, these apologists have, have doubts and are not fully confident of their but they're apologetics, so they might be merely professing them. Yeah, I think that's true. But I don't think anybody is escapes that. I think all of us in our moral convictions, for instance, and our political convictions are completely guilty of that. So I'm not surprised when an apologist talking about these, you know, grand metaphysical claims about, about God and the nature of the universe and reality, that, that they're engaged in that too. I know I'm engaged in that when I engage in moral philosophy, when I engage in my in, in, in political discourse, I know very often my own confidence in the arguments for my moral and political positions does not scale with the confidence that I have mm. in propositions themselves. It's, uh, mm -hmm. It shouldn't be, but that's how it is. So if you bear that in mind, you bear that in mind, you can be a lot more charitable when you encounter an apologist who's putting forward an argument that you think, nah, there's no way you can convince by that. So your response reminds me of something that a lot of people who are using SE will do, where we hear, we ask a person what they believe. They say, I believe in a God. We ask them for a couple of justifications. Can you tell me why? What is your main justification? And then uh, they might profess to say, I was involved in a rollover accident and I survived it. And then before we spend an hour talking about statistics, we might just ask them, if you surviving a rollover accident could be explained to your satisfaction that uh, statistically uh, that, it, you know, with a person who is driving in your area with this type of car, with a seatbelt on, it's quite common to survive these things. Would you still believe in the God with just as much confidence? And they would say, yes, of course, I still believe it's, it's based on faith or something. So um, it's a really handy rhetorical tool just by asking a question to, to determine 
does that justification have any bearing whatsoever on your confidence in this belief? And if they say, no, I would still be just as confident, then there must be something else propping up that belief. And I think uh, when you were giving your response, you, you, you reminded me of that as something that we do often where uh, it helps us isolate what is driving that belief, what is driving their confidence in that, in that belief. And sometimes we have to repeat that three or four times where we finally get down to that lower level, which tends to be, well, here's the evidence for it, which it's almost not when it comes to a God, or I'm taking it on faith. Well, what level of confidence do you think is acceptable for, for a belief? I mean, obviously, at a certain point, people are going to call it knowledge, right? I mean, the, the greater degree of confidence is a differentiation between what we would consider to be belief as opposed to what we consider to be knowledge, even though I, I see a lot of people lately think that knowledge means epistemic certainty. And I'm kind of confused mm. where they seem to derive that from, that they think to say they know something, they have to be absolutely certainty in some kind of Cartesian certainty sense. And I, well, I don't know why again, that's Again, you have to remember, you have to remember that the people that I'm running into very rarely have given a lot of thought to these types of questions, okay? They don't know the these academic differences between knowledge and and belief and what and knowledge is justified true belief and all this all this stuff. They're giving a... And, and Ozzy and I are trying to have a, uh, trying to set up another conversation, perhaps with Matt uh, Dillahunty and Blake June to, to get into this idea of the belief scale. Um, but generally, people are able to, to kind of get a sense of how sure they are that something is true, and they can probably throw it on the scale. Sometimes people aren't comfortable with it, and they're like, oh, just, just put down, I'm, I'm very confident. I don't want to give you a number. That's silly. Why would I want to do that? But generally, people profess a, a fairly high degree of confidence in their belief that a God exists. Sometimes they say, I'm like a 30%. And then it can get really interesting. Okay, well, you know, why aren't you at 100? What, what was the thing that brought you down to a 30? So, um, yeah, it's, it's not a perfect system. It's hard but, to quantify uh, it, right? It is. Yeah, it's hard to quantify, but at least it's a, it, just asking somebody how sure they are that something is true can be a profound question for a person that's never considered that their belief may not be true. Just to just to like think, yeah, well, how sure am I that that's true? That, that in itself can get the wheels turning and we haven't even asked difficult questions yet. Yeah, that's interesting. When I was a believer, I remember um, I, I didn't feel confident. It, I mean, to say that I felt if you'd asked me how confident uh, are you, Ozzy, that, you know, that that you know Jehovah exists. I, I would I might have been a little bit dumbfounded by the question and, and you know how confident am I? Like it and it wasn't because I see confidence almost doesn't characterize what I felt. I had never doubted it. <laughs> right? I had never doubted it. I had grown up in a, a family where this was just, you know, you know, Jehovah was as real as trees and clouds, right? Um, and uh, sure, he wasn't as evident, as obvious as a, he wasn't an object to be met with in space, right? But that wasn't a problem because, given the kind of you know thing that that, that Jehovah is, it wasn't problematic that I I didn't see the sort of material evidence of, of him in the world or anything like that, right? So I it, it wasn't even that I felt confident. I, was, I what I felt was almost beyond confidence. It was like I never doubted it. And so if you'd asked me, well, you never doubted? You're 100 percent certain. Uh, I, I think what I would have had to have said is, yeah, well, I guess I am. I never thought of it in those days. I never thought of it in terms of 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 a, of a scale of confidence. Like very often, when you ask somebody how confident are you of something, it's because there are there is something that warrants a doubt, something that motivates a person to have some doubts. If you ask me, you know, how confident are you 
um, you know, that the Blue Jays will, will, will win the next baseball game or something like that? Or how confident are you that your car uh, is not going to break down or something like that, right? I have reasons but I, why I, I think whatever it is I think about, about that. Um, but I, I, there are also reasons that would motivate a doubt. Well, I know that cars break down and I've had a car break down on me in the, in the past, right? And I know the record of the Blue Jays or, you know, whatever team or something like that, right? So there, there would be reasons for me to think that maybe it's not true or that maybe it, it, things will work out a certain way rather than another way. In the case of Jehovah, I had never been, I had been so sheltered, so insulated uh, by, by, my, by my upbringing that I really uh, didn't have until fairly late in the game, until like, you know, in my mid-teens really, I didn't really have any good reason to question it. Mm. Right? So the, the suggestion that there was something to doubt seemed bizarre. It would be like, you know, Ozzy, do you doubt that you have hands? What? Why on earth would I, I, there's nothing to motivate the doubt that I have hands. I see. And then if you said something, well, well, maybe you're dreaming. What the heck? <laughs> the question would have just seemed uh, insane to you or just inconsistent. But would that have been reality, the case thousands of years ago? Most people were, were generally theists, right? It would have been almost incomprehensible just for somebody to say, I believe there are no gods. I believe that Jehovah doesn't exist, right? I mean, what, what, what would that person be thought of back then 2,000 years ago? Because that was definitely not the norm, correct? Yeah, I mean, you could have been thought of as as completely deranged, right? So I, th that's one of the liabilities I see with the with the, the idea of a scale, right? Is is that for most people, I think most people have entertained, especially by the time they reach an uh, adulthood, they haven't entertained some serious doubts about their some part of their um, their religion, and they will probably have encountered uh, someone's incredulity about the existence of their God and they will have had a conversation about it. And so, yes, they can understand someone having doubts and they can understand themselves having doubts about it because something that someone might've said might have given rise to some doubts, right? But in my case, at a certain age, there was nothing like that, mm. right? I mean, it, it, wow. it, I, you know. You were in deep. And you can imagine, well, I mean, I was young. I lived in a rural community. I was like, you know, <laughs> it was pretty backwards. <laughs> you know, it's interesting though. I met a guy, he was in his eighties. And he said, I asked him that same question, you know, he believed in a God. How, sh how sure are you from zero to 100? And he was so stunned. He said, nobody's ever asked me why I think that this belief is true and why I am so sure that it's true. And that was really, that was, uh, I, I felt kind of bad for him. And, and I, I ended up uploading the video and using it as an example for the theists who might be watching that are far younger than he and, and asking them, you know, do you want to be 80 years old and never have questioned what you're believing to see if it's true? And it was a little discouraging to run into somebody like that, but it ended up kind of working out to be sort of a sort of a teaching moment. Um, I think if I had run into Ozzy and he would have said, I've, I've never contemplated even being mistaken on this belief, I would probably ask something along the lines of uh, some, maybe something like, how did you determine that this thing is really true? You know, probably recognizing that that he's having difficulty answering this question. And I wouldn't just harp on a certainty and say, "Well, no, you need to give me a number." I mean, we can we can skip past that. It would be evident that he really, really believes that it's true, and then we can shift to his justifications. Have you ever considered that you might be mistaken? What do you think of people who believe in completely different gods? How could how could do you think that they may be just as as confident that their belief is true? And, and sometimes that's enough to kind of 
pry open the cracks a little bit and and kind of peek around and see what's down there. Yeah, I, I see a lot of people come to the community um, every so often that have an isolated background. They they were raised a specific way, raised to have a specific belief, and then they read some web page or they get a hold of something and then they jump right into it. And of course, being around for a while, we've seen pretty much everything. I don't think there's that much new under the sun as far as argumentations when it comes to God or, 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 or not God. But they they get exposed real quickly to to facts that they may have never been experienced before. I actually had people that even younger creationists said, no, I've never heard of that. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Um, they, they, again, learn something they think is a defeater for older creationism or or should say more theistic evolution or uh, just evolution in general and then they learn something um, this has happened but they have to be exposed to these things to begin with um, and that's what i think what's great about the great debate community is that and even straight epistemology is that they're getting exposed to things that maybe they have never been exposed to before the the, the ability to think the ability to reason the, the questioning of what isn't a justification. I don't think the average person on the street, and I, you, you can answer this question, Anthony, but do you think the average person on the street even knows what a justificatory thing is? Do they know what that even means? I don't think they require to by any means. But no, I don't think it is so. Cool when they learn something about that and go, yeah, maybe my beliefs do need to have reasons. <clears throat> Right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when sometimes people get a little lost in uh, in the belief, or they may become more defensive because it's a it's a cherished, deeply held belief that's tied to their identity, like a god existing. And if if you feel like they're getting overwhelmed by the subject, you can change it. I heard a recent example that I thought was great. Uh, you know, you can just ask your interlocutor if they are willing to accept my claim that I have a Lamborghini and that I drove to the park and the Lamborghini is in the parking lot. And, and you can just take them through this exercise of, well, what would it take for you to be convinced that I had a Lamborghini sitting in the parking lot? And uh, you can just have a nice, friendly chat about what they would accept. Would they just take me on my word? Would they need to see a picture of it, maybe? Could I just hold up the keychain? Would that be good enough? Or would we actually need to walk out to the parking lot and me show you one? Would that still be enough to convince you that that one is my Lamborghini? So again, this, this kind of all keeps coming back to tools that we want to, of course, question people's beliefs and challenge them gently on how they could be so sure. But some people aren't ready for that. You need to maybe even go to a deeper level to, to teach them how they probably use these methods in their own daily lives. They're not gullible, probably generally. They probably question if somebody knocked on their door and wanted to sell them something, they'd probably be a little, a little suspicious, a little, a little skeptical. And so they're already using this already to some degree, but for some reason, when it comes to some of these more important beliefs, some of these uh, these beliefs that are tied to a person's identity, they're selective and they don't they 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 cordon those beliefs off, and and this is sort of uh, these talks I think encourage people to know go ahead and question those beliefs, question these things that you really think are true. Um, and and impart those tools to them so that they can do it on their own. Uh, real quick, I I, I kind of I usually try to keep my my hangouts down to like ninety minutes or so. I, I, you know, it gets kind of um, tiresome for for the guests and things like that. At least to ninety minutes to maybe two hours at most. Um, if you don't mind, can, can we like uh, address some things from the live chat if they want to like ask some questions real quick? Because I want to kind of get that in, and some of the things like yeah. maybe I asked you prior to um, to the hangout about some of the uh, criticisms 
that uh, I, I've read about SC, and, and I think honestly most of them are unjustified. Not not going to front. I think that the one of the things that I saw levied against uh, street epistemology that I'd like to get your opinion on, that you know they were saying that this is an atheist way of saying they have a rational way to coming to truth, a reliable, excuse me, a reliable mechanism to coming to truth, and mm. and I, I and they're saying that with surety. And what's your take on that? Is is SV, would SV be something that you say is a surefire way to come to truth, or is this a way to get people to, to recognize that maybe their method isn't as surefire wow. as they think? Okay, that that's that's a good question. So, my knee-jerk reaction would be to say that uh, when I'm engaging with somebody, I'm questioning how they're so sure, and then uh, they come to realize that the methods that they're using are not reliable. But I I don't then say okay. Now that we've completely destroyed your foundation, or you could now you recognize how destroyed your foundation for believing in this thing is is really is. Here's the truth. All right, here's the exact way that you go about figuring out the truth. We don't go that far. However, I do think the act of asking these questions is a good way to arrive at a truth. So it's 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 a, there's there's probably a little bit to that where um you know, I'm engaging in these discussions because I think, I personally think that they seem to be a really good way of sussing out what's true or not. Um, it's the questioning. It's the, it's the act of going through and questioning these things that I think is a, is a great way to, to get to a truth. Um, is it the best way? I don't know. Um, I would love someone to SE me on sort of the SE that we're using to see if it's beneficial. Um, that would be an interesting exercise, actually. Yeah, we we actually have had people se why you're doing se and and how do you know that this is beneficial? What's what you know? How did you come to conclude that this is actually helping people and not hurting people? Uh, we we've actually had those conversations. There's there's a couple of Facebook groups. One of them has almost uh, 4,500 members. Uh, just search for Facebook and you can join and you can you can engage in those types of discussions. They're pretty good. What what would be a metric um, by yeah, which you measure the success? And this is why I, you know, we have theists that say, well, I'm going to go out and do SE as well. And I, I, I'm just, I made a tweet the other day, like I'm dying to see that because I think it would become apparent when the questioning stops and when the worldview, sh worldview sharing begins. Well, they already have presuppositional argumentation, but uh, what, what would be the, um, the metric you'd say would be what you would measure success of SE? I mean, obviously, the, the measurement of success is by what your end goal would be. If you set forth a certain end goal and you say, this is what I want the metric to comport to, to say, okay, <laughs> if I have this many people that, that do this, then I can measure it as success. What do you want that success to be? Do you just want them to, to question wow. their beliefs or do you want them to actually relinquish their beliefs in lieu of some other type of what you would consider to be more um, believe better beliefs that can, what you would think of port with reality. Damn. That's a, that's a great question. So for some people, a success might be having a conversation, getting an, I don't know out of a person and then ending in on good terms where they might want to meet with you again. That could be a success to people. Uh, for others, it might be the, the complete recognition and abandonment of an unreliable belief within a year after X number of conversations. Like that might be a goal for somebody else. For somebody else, it might be um, somebody backing off on 100% certainty, right? Like recognizing, you know what? Yeah, I really can't know that that's true, but I have a strong belief that that's true. That might be a success. I don't know what a success is, uh, but this is something that needs to be discussed and it needs to be studied. Right now with SE, I think we're in this, we're in this, um, 
this phase of promoting it and practicing it and seeing what, you know, throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks and what works. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a muddled mix of, of motivational interviewing and psychology and philosophy. And, and we're getting all this feedback from people, but what we need to get to at some point is some backing where we can have people doing a, a thousand person study or a 10,000 person computer-based study on a safe topic like karma and, and ask up to 20 questions. And then you do some sort of long-term study for the next 10 years with those folks. And you see if they've moved one way or the other on their confidence or their certainty that I believe is true. Um, it, that's an awesome question. And I could probably spend an hour talking about it. Well, I think perhaps maybe if I may real quick, you might just base upon what a success should be as something that was not a failure. You had had a video before where you had shown what a failure looks like with these with this, the the street feature, and so maybe a success is right. something that's just not a failure in that regard. And if you want to like mention that yeah. real quick, uh, you know about that that scenario. Yeah, yeah. So you, when I first started off doing this, I would argue with people. I have videos where I'm going out to to do street epistemology, as I was thinking that it was, and I was still falling back to my angry atheist aggressive ways. And I might start off really nice and cordial, but three questions in, they drop something about. Uh, they radiocarbon dated a snail and it was, you know, it was 4 million years old and it's here, it's this living thing. And then he, I, I slipped back to my old ways. So yeah, maybe a success is adhering to strict SE where you resist the temptation to offer counter apologetics. That might possibly be a success. So, um, because a counter apologetics might lead to that goals, backfire effect, people, right? You know, are far more along the way with regards to this technique and I think what a success is, is going to vary uh, in some people's minds, like I said, a, a complete abandonment of a belief. Like I met a guy two years ago, we met in a college university. He was hundred percent sure that his, uh, he was hundred percent sure that uh, confident that his belief was true. And he reached out to me almost two years later to say that that conversation got him on a path to questioning further to the point where he eventually abandoned his belief. And I have lots of examples like that, not just God beliefs, but other beliefs. Is that a success? I don't know. I mean, we, we, we need to we need to address what those things are and then come up with ways to measure it. And I'm not even suggesting that I should be a part of that. I think this probably needs to be even independently looked at from the practitioners of it. Did you want to add something, Ozzy? Yeah. Uh, uh, quite apart from sort of measuring success, I think I'll tell you what I, one of the things I like best about street epistemology, um, quite apart from the civility of it, the way I see it practiced by a lot of people, especially Anthony, uh, which I think is admirable. Um, uh, one of the things I like about it is it, it is a, a proper approach to, to the recommendation of skepticism. I, I've often said, listen, I, I'm not an atheist activist. You know, I'm, I'm an outspoken atheist, but I'm not an atheist activist. I'm not agitating to get people to become atheists. What I am is a proponent of skepticism and critical thinking and the embracing of scientific values. That I think should be the goal. And, and, and I think that as a result of that, a byproduct of that will be people tending to abandon dogmatism and superstition and irrationality and moving in the direction of, of atheism. But I don't, I don't try to get people to, to you know, affirm that gods don't exist. I think it, it's enough if we can get people um, being skeptical. But, but here's what I, I think is interesting. Um, throughout this, um, 
and watching Anthony's videos, there's, there's an emphasis on questioning. And I think that's the right spirit. Um, the, way, the way to properly understand skepticism is that it's not about doubt. A lot of people think that doubt is what it's all about. You've got to get people to doubt. Doubt is a virtue. Doubt's not a virtue. Doubt is a feeling. Certainty is a feeling. And feeling certain about something, that's not any metric of knowledge or truth. You can feel certain about things that are just false. And you can doubt things that are true. And feeling certain about something isn't, isn't an accomplishment, right? Uh, we often feel certain about things precisely because we're ignorant about a subject and some feeling bubbles up and, and, and we feel very confident about it, okay? So certainty isn't uh, a measure of truth. It's unconnected to knowledge and veracity. Um, it's just your subjective assessment of, of the likelihood that something is true. You can be supremely confident, we tend to call that certainty. Uh, doubt is something that is equally effortless. Um, when, if you tell me that, um, you know, someone stole my car, I go, what? What do you, what do you mean? It was just in my driveway, right? Uh, but if, if you tell me that Godzilla just crushed my car, I'm going to think you're joking. Uh, and if you tell me a plane just, you know, crashed and, and wiped out my car and I didn't hear, a, you know, a thunderous crash, I'm going to go, no, that's not true. You're, you're wrong or something like that. Uh, if you tell me that, that, that someone I was just talking to 10 minutes ago has, has died, I'm probably going to call it into question uh, because I was just talking to them. And chances are nothing terrible happened to them in, that, in the last 10 minutes, right? In other words, I have reasons for doubting, right? The doubts just bubble up in me. Doubt is a feeling, okay? You don't have to try to doubt anything. And it's not a good idea to try to doubt something any more than it's a good idea to try to believe something or be confident about something. Skepticism isn't about doubt. Skepticism is about interrogation. It's about questioning. And one of the things I like best about street epistemology is the emphasis on questioning, on interrogation, on getting people to ask questions. That has the effect of raising doubts. It can also have the effect of raising a person's confidence, right? But I, I don't hear anybody recommending that you doubt this and you doubt that and, and trying to directly shake a person's beliefs. The idea is, no, no, we're just going to get a person in the habit of mind uh, of thinking uh, about the connection between what they believe and why they believe it. Okay? And that's just a, that all that is is getting a person to question, not doubt, but get them to question why they believe. And as soon as that happens, if there's not a good connection between what they believe and why they believe it, doubts will bubble up. Doubts sort of emerge naturally, just like confidence emerges rationally, because just as easily as if you say, why do you believe? And they never really thought about it, but then they think of some excellent reasons why they believe it's true. Then their confidence will grow. Their estimation of the truth of that, of that proposition is going, is going to grow. So confidence and doubt are both feelings. They're not measures of anything. There's no virtue in doubting anything. You need reasons to doubt, just like you need reasons to be confident. But do you think doubt is, is, volunt is voluntary or involuntary? It's involuntary. It just happens to you. Just like beliefs. Just, just like, yeah, exactly. But questioning, that is an act. That is an act. That is a decision. You can say, you know what? I want to question things. And the, and and I, I get sort of pushback from sometimes uh, from people sometimes who self-identify as skeptics and critical thinkers. When I put forward uh, certain uh, chestnut philosophical problems like a uh, human's problem of induction or something like that, or, you know, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat or something like that? Or, you know, how do you know there are other minds and, and things like that and that solipsism isn't true? And people think it's just some kind of game. But the point is this. These are all beliefs that we have. 
that there's a mind-independent reality, that there are other minds out there, that the future will resemble the past in relevant respect, right? We don't question these things. We should question these things. That doesn't mean you have to doubt them, okay? But the confidence that we feel is kind of weird, given that most of us have never thought about these things. Um, and so we have no good justification or reason, right? Surely there's nothing wrong with calling them into question. If you want to sort of think of yourself as a good skeptic and a critical thinker, if there's one thing you should do, it's question the things you never doubt, the things that you think are beyond doubting, unworthy of doubting. That's precisely what a skeptic and a critical thinker thinks about and doubts and, and, and questions and interrogates, right? And then doubts will either arise or they, or they won't. But don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that skepticism is doubting, because then what will happen is you look at street epistemology and you'll, you'll, you'll think that, oh, well, you know, the, Anthony is, is being a good skeptic to the, to the extent that he's trying to get people to doubt things. Look, it's not about getting people to doubt things. It's about getting them to question things. And the rest, just doubting and, 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 and confidence, that happens as a byproduct. You don't have to try to instill doubt. You just have to get people to question. That's what skepticism is. Skepticism and critical thinking is about interrogation. Right? It's not about uh, trying to engender doubt or actively trying to doubt. I can't muster a doubt. I don't have that power. I can't muster confidence in myself in something I don't think is true. I doubt things effortlessly when they strike me as wrong. If I believe something to be true and you present me a fact that contradicts it, the first thing I'm going to do is doubt your evidence. Yeah, before you came in, we were kind of talking about this. This is why, exactly, if Anthony remembers, I was hesitant to use the word doubt for that very reason because I find that people who claim to be skeptics use the word doubt differently than I use it. And, yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I didn't want to. I, I say I know Anthony thinks that that um, pseudepistemology is to to impart doubt, but I have the same concerns on that that you just you just enunciated for the same reason because I don't I, I don't think doubt is something we voluntarily come to either, um, and so I think that like you said, for skepticism to me is a methodology for determining truth value. It's a methodology to say is or you know it, do we have reasons to believe these things? Do we are we justified? But I don't think that we should necessarily just use skepticism on things that we doubt. I think again, I I, I apply skepticism across the board. Are is my foundational position from foundationalism legit? Do I have reasons to be a foundationalist? Why something else? I do these things all the time when they get when they get brought up. I want to I want to uh, throw in a caveat there. I don't want anyone to construe what I just said as um, something that. Uh, uh, Anthony would affirm. I don't know how he feels about what I just said. Uh, in fact, he might disagree. He might say, no, I am explicitly trying to raise doubts. Uh, but but I, I think that that is a misbegotten way of, of characterizing the project. And when I, when I watch what you do in your videos, you're getting people to, to examine the, the, the connection between what they believe and why they believe it, if, if there's anything there. Okay? That's skepticism. That's critical thinking. That's interrogation. That's questioning. Right. That very often has the effect of raising doubts, especially on subjects where you, you have good reason to think they probably don't have any, any good connection there. Um, but but I think people are entirely um, too focused on on trying to raise doubts and they, they, they valorize doubt. They think doubt is a virtue. Doubt is not a virtue. It's just a feeling. It's a byproduct. Mm. Right? If by doubting you mean questioning, that's fine. I think questioning and interrogation is an epistemological and cognitive virtue. So okay? this is a really good discussion, and I'm loving this because on my Twitter bio, I think it says imparting the gift of doubt. 
So as you've characterized my position uh, or your position, I, 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 I do think that, um, yeah, I, I guess I agree that doubt is a feeling. And I guess th this is awesome because uh, doubt is such a scary word for people. If you, if you frame it and you say, have you ever doubted? That's far scarier to ask than have you ever questioned? Questioning, right. oh, yeah. questioning Absolutely. great. I question all the time. I question my kids. I question my doctor. I question myself sometimes, but doubt, ooh, that's scary. Um, so I, I, uh, you've definitely given me something to think about here. And as we're talking, you know, we were before this, before we got into this little thing, we were talking about the goal of the, of street epistemology or what is a success? And maybe the success here is openness because if a person is open, if they're more open to the idea of being mistaken, mm -hmm. then they will start asking themselves these questions and perhaps doubt is the outcome of openness. So so yeah, maybe 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 I, I am characterizing I think this by saying that the idea here is to impart doubt. But anybody who's been in the military, um, and because will know, and maybe that's just the outcome of of what we're actually doing. Anybody, this is I love this because <laughs> you know I've been plugging away at this for five years, and this is the type of dialogue that helps me grow and get better at this at this method and better understand what it is we're doing. Um, well, that's what I meant when I said you, this you, is you what I think. Be, doing. I had the volume turned down. Sorry. Sorry, sorry I, I, this is what I meant when I said, this is what I see you doing. Yeah. And, and while you might, might be talking uh, a lot of talk about doubt, what I see you doing is interrogating and questioning and getting people to see the value of interrogating and questioning things Which they don't doubt. even doubt. Yeah. They, it, where, where, where there is no doubt, you can still question. In, in, indeed, I, I, I would submit that one of the smartest things you can do is doubt is to question precisely where you have no doubts. Yeah. Right? I mean, that is what you want to do. That yeah. is a critical thinker. And right? Anthony, if, if I can make the distinction real quick, um, in the mm -hmm. military, you, you, you have to make decisions, right? And you have to make sometimes quick snap decisions. Also, um, I had background in, in, um, in management. You have to make decisions. You have to question your decisions, but that doesn't mean you necessarily doubt them, right? They're not synonymous terms in that regard. Right. Mm -hmm. You always mm -hmm. are making, you're always revising your position to say, am I making the correct decision by asking yourself questions pertinent to the outcome that you want to achieve? That doesn't necessarily translate to doubt, in my opinion. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Would, Ozzie, does that make sense to you, Ozzy? Was that in, in a way? Uh, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, remember, you can question things that you don't doubt. And I, 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 yes. I, I, I submit that you, you, you sort of have an, an epistemological responsibility if you're going to self-identify as a, a critical thinker and a skeptic to question and interrogate precisely where you don't have doubts. Anybody can question when they have uh, something when they have doubts about it. Everyone does. You don't need skepticism and critical thinking when you have doubts. You're, you're going to be an ace critical thinker and skeptic when something strikes you as bullshit. Right. As soon as someone says something to you that strikes you as false, spotting flaws and fallacies is so easy. All everything in your psychology is ready and primed, ready to go to tear that apart and find everything wrong with it. Okay. It's precisely when you think something is true that you need the toolbox of critical thinking skills right. and you have to apply it to what you think is the case, especially in cases where I've never had a reason to think it was false. Okay, well, but what reasons do I have for thinking that it's true? 
that it's always seemed obvious. This is what I met earlier when I was talking about, like, I grew up thinking, of course it's true that, that Jehovah exists. I mean, if I said to you, Anthony, who's your daddy? And how do you know it? Because your mama told you so, right? What if I told you your daddy isn't who you think it is? It's some other guy. At, right away, doubts are up and you don't need to apply any critical thinking skills. They are automatically deployed. Yeah. And so, so you know, we talk an awful a lot about rationalization being a kind of automatic uh, process and, and, and a kind of cognitive bias, right? But so is a kind of knee-jerk skepticism. And knee-jerk skepticism, I don't mean proper skepticism. I mean just listening to your doubts and immediately looking to find fault. That's effortless. No one needs to practice that. We're all masters of that already. Um, and so really, what I see you doing with, with street epistemology and what I see others doing, at least when they're doing it well by my lights, is what they're, they're getting people to, to think about is things that they think are true very often when they have never really thought it through and you're exposing that they haven't thought it thought it through that often has the effect of raising doubts in people <laughs> but you don't have to sort of approach it and it's funny you said that word doubt is scary whereas questioning isn't so scary why is doubt scary in the case here's another thing that i in the case of of, of religious beliefs people talk about faith they often mean they, they often mean something different than what a, a lot of non-believers understand them to be faith is a, an awful lot about faith is is well, what does faith mean? Faith means fidelity. Well, what is fidelity? Fidelity is loyalty. People believe in being loyal to their beliefs. Mm -hmm. Now that, as a critical thinker and a skeptic, strikes me as just crazy. You should never be loyal to your beliefs, right? You, I, I mean, my beliefs serve me. I'm not going to serve my beliefs. You're not beholden to that. I'm not beholden to my beliefs. My, beha my beliefs just have to, to, to strike me as true, but I don't, I don't owe them anything, right? Right? Um, so, but the people often feel that they ought to be loyal, that they have a duty to serve their beliefs, um, and that it's infidelity, literally infidelity, faithlessness, um, to have doubts. And some religions really make that explicit. You know, I mean, doubt is, is synonymous with backsliding, with faithlessness, with turning your back on God. And so they never want to admit to having a doubt, but you can often get a person to say, well, no, I've never really questioned it. And they won't really have much problem with it because they think it's so obviously true. Why would they have questioned it? Everything speaks for it. Nothing speaks against it. So they're happy to, to say, to admit that they haven't questioned it. Or they'll say they questioned it. And then you'll say, okay, well, let's, let's, let's explore this. Let's question it now. Um, but doubt, it, as you said, it is a scary word. It, 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 it rankles. Um, but that's because doubt in the minds of many religious people and some religious traditions is synonymous with infidelity, with disloyalty. Right. And of course, I mean, if you think someone, if there's a great God out there who's looking after you and he sacrificed his only begotten son for you and stuff like that, the least you can do is believe. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, as weird as that, that seems uh, a request, uh, it seems disloyal to not believe, to at least not profess to believe. And so people don't want to profess to have doubts. Right. Because that, that they, they see that as a sin. Um, it's characterized in a religion for many as as a sin. Uh, but anyway, so I think the spirit in which you do street epistemology, uh, Anthony, is in the spirit of trying to get people to understand the connection between 
what they believe and why, that's epistemology. That's, that, that's, that's the biggest chapter of epistemology is, is the question of justification and warrant. How, how do, how, what gives rise to our beliefs and, and what gives us reason to think that those beliefs are true? That connection, that justificatory connection, that's what it's all about. Uh, and, 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 and skepticism and critical thinking is all about questioning and interrogation. It's not about doubting. Anybody can doubt. We all doubt all the time effortlessly when we think something is false. What's hard is questioning something you think is true and then seeing if there's any doubt that arises from that. Yeah, yeah I think that's fantastic. difficult to do, too. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I, I love that. That's awesome because uh, this this gives me a new way of thinking about, you know, what, what we're doing. And it seems like uh, this thing that I run into is that you, you, you run to a lot of people who are closed. They They are not even willing to entertain the idea that they're mistaken. So that seems to be like the first hurdle is is helping a person become open to examining their beliefs, um, and and you do that through questioning and getting them to see the benefit of questioning is very important, and then yeah maybe maybe doubt is that that imparting outcome that happens after the after the questions start to happen. Uh, that's really that's yeah, really and, cool. And the theist the, the theist argument that I've seen against uh, street epistemology it seems to stem from that. Like I think what Ozzy was saying, that they think it's a sin to doubt, and the loyalty isn't so much to the belief; the loyalty is to their what they perceive to be their, the deity, um, and to the scriptures and things of that nature. So when they say, "Well, street epistemology is getting the theist to you know to think critically," um, as long as it's an honest approach, I find absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, if a theist would, if they have an argument against street epistemology that street epistemology is not an honest approach to it, then they would have some legitimacy to the concern. But I, I think I've that's watched the, a lot of things that I haven't seen anything dishonest. I haven't seen any dishonest approach from you the, or the in only, any video the only argument. The only argument that I think uh, has some merit against street epistemology that I've seen thus far is that sometimes we're we're a little careful on what we disclose at the start because we recognize that doing so could cause a person to become defensive. Right, which is um, understandable. Why some of the more recent videos where I'm literally saying, my name is Anthony, I'd like to have a short little chat with you. I'm practicing something called street epistemology. It's this approach where I'm asking questions and I'm gonna challenge you a little bit. I'm gonna try to get a sense of how sure you are. And there's even a chance that you might be less confident that your belief is true by the end of it. I, I've come to the point now where I'm just laying like all the cards on the table and then I still get criticism that, well, you've just primed that person for change by telling them what you're up to. And, and now they're going to be more apt to actually change their mind. And you're going to get the result that you want because you've, you've told them where you want to go with this. No, I think that's being so, fair in your dialogue, though. I think that laying your cards on the table like that's fine. I do understand, though, not laying all your cards on the table because it does introduce bias that you, you don't really want to have in a discussion. And I think that if you approach that fairly enough and that you, you do disclose at some point, which I've seen you do, then there's no there's no there's no concern that I have, and I, that was one thing I got to admit when I first started watching your videos, I had a concern about. It. I'm like, is this person being you know honest about what they believe? If asked, are they are they telling the person what the goal of these things are? Um, and and I completely understand now that you do do that. Um, you you know if asked, you may postpone it toward the I end. I try to do. Sometimes I forget. It's, it's funny. That, that's it's honest, funny also. Though. That's honest. That's an honest approach though. But here's the thing, like you don't you don't want to overwhelm your conversation partner by telling them too much. Right. You know, I do want people to agree to talk to me because it's hot out there and I only have a certain amount of time and I want to get a couple of videos in. So um, some people even said, 
don't don't say that you're just asking what and why and how you could be so sure because there are you there are other things that you're doing here. So I've dropped the word just yeah, from my vocabulary. I'm just interviewing people to see what and what you know, what they believe and why. Um, so it's funny how you know throwing up these examples and, and 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 it's this constant improvement I think since I've been doing it. And and I think I'll look back in three years and just cringe at the video that I, that I uploaded two weeks ago because I there was some horrible gaffe that I neglected to uh, to mention or that I've that I actually said at the start, and um, yeah. So this whole idea of not being completely upfront about what you're is probably the biggest criticism, but I think it is something that we can address and we probably have an obligation to address it and 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 even give people a heads up that. You know, depending on what belief you pick, if it's very tied to your identity and you begin to start questioning it and possibly doubting it, um, that it could be a hardship. It might be difficult for you. And, and in fact, I even asked somebody that recently. Um, she was a little hesitant to, to do the interview. I think her name was Cherry. And I said, well, there, there is a chance that I might, I might ask you some difficult questions here. And, and she took a moment. This is kind of, this is great because she took like 30 seconds and she, she was asking her God if she should participate in the talk. And uh -huh. lo and behold, he told her, I, okay. I think I watched that video. So I, I did watch that video. And you had asked her how, yeah, yeah, you know, you asked her if, you know, did, you know, something along the lines and she said, yeah, God said it was fine. It was like the first minute of the discussion. She said, yeah, God said it was fine for me to talk to you. Right. 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 Yeah. But that being, that being said, I do think we have an obligation to, to let people know what we're up to. Um, but there's a fine line because you don't want to overwhelm people. Like I said, and, you know, but if you disclose too much, it, you might actually jeopardize the the nature of the conversation that you plan on, on sure. having. Sure. Well, I hope I hope you got some takeaway from this particular hangout. I don't want to keep it too long because I know there's uh, um, it, it's weary really quick. Oh, this is a fascinating uh, topic. I mean, I'm just thrilled that you you're able to to come on and talk to us about this because I find this to be Thank you for inviting us. That's really great and, and educational. Um, I'm, you know, I I'm, I had my reservations. I, I was going to live talk to you for like about a month now. Um. I've sussed, you know, a few of them out with Ozzy and a few other people. Um, I, I think that everything I had is kind of alleviated to, on my end. Um, I actually enjoying watching the SC videos. I think they are a good way for people to um, to question things, and and I find nothing wrong with questioning. Um, I think that people should question, especially the things that they normally wouldn't question. I find nothing wrong with that, and if SC facilitates people... that, that's great. I, I, you know, speaking for SE, I guess right now, but we generally the people in this community that are learning this method want others to challenge what we're doing and question it, and and that's what's so I love. Like interviews are great, but when I'm when I'm challenged about what I'm doing, and like this discussion we had about doubt, like that this that was fascinating. That was great because that helps elevate uh, this method. I think so. We we want criticisms. We have a we have a Facebook group. Where people who believe, regardless of what you believe, whatever you know, about a God or karma or whatever, it's a group where people can go to learn this method, and and we want people to try to poke holes in it, and, and we want some rigor. We want this. We don't want to harm people with this method. We want to challenge people with it, and or we're always looking for ways to improve it. Ozzy, do you want to like? Uh... Just add anything to that before we, we, we take this off. I I asked live chat yeah. for questions, but they really didn't seem to have any. I think the only real question is is somebody's concerned about um, maybe it does SC be somehow border on evangelism, which is a fair question. But uh, uh, do you want to address that? First? I can take that if you want. Yeah, well, uh, well, it's up to you guys. Yeah, go ahead, Anthony. And then I'll let Ozzy. Yeah, that's a common question we get. 
are you are you just as bad as Ray Comfort going out there and asking trick questions? And I think we addressed this early on, where I was where I was saying that when we engage in street epistemology, we're asking questions, but we're not providing answers. You know, once we discover that a person has an unreliable epistemology for arriving at their belief, we don't then say, "Well, here's here's a more reliable way to go about doing this." We we want to impart them with these with these questions, with doubt, and uh, and the tools so that they can start engaging in this internal dialogue uh, by themselves is, is, is and it with kind the of people more, in their lives. Is, is it, so. Oh, I, I, th I think that's tremendously different than what you might see with a with someone who's proselytizing for Christianity or something like that. Is it more that you're telling people how to think, not what to think? Therefore, it's not evangelizing. I drop the word "telling," like we're we're showing. That's or what I'm saying. You're, you're not telling. You're not you're not telling them what to think. You're showing them more how to think. Therefore, because yeah, I guess we're trying, you, I guess maybe we're we're modeling more of a. A, a sense of skepticism and critical thinking and, and self-examination of your own beliefs. Um, I, I made a tweet the other day, yesterday, I think, something along the lines of, I would love to see two, two people who believe in gods use street epistemology on each other. Yeah, that would like, be I think interesting. That, I think that would be so interesting. Theists, theists talk about doing this all the time, but I would love to see a theist attempt to use street epistemology and I think it would become it would become evident at which point it stopped being SE and it started becoming evangelizing. I think it eventually. I think if you have two theists, um, I think I think it'd be hard for them to do um, a more of an unbiased approach. I mean, most theists I've seen they they have a very strong position and they want to impart that position because it's part of their position. The part of part of a theistic, especially the, I would say the Christian theology, is to is to evangelize in some ways. That's part of their their dogma. So I think it's kind of hard for them to probably sit back and have a discussion of this nature where you 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 can't really evangelize. You, you try not to. You're not telling people you know what's right, what's wrong. You're letting them kind of come to their own conclusions by by showing them a, maybe a different thought process by which to evaluate their beliefs. Right? Yeah, so I think it'd, I agree it'd be with interesting. Ozzy, go ahead real quick. Uh, yeah, well, I, I was just going to say uh, I was relatively unfamiliar with uh, street epistemology. I'd heard the term uh, a few years ago, actually, I think, uh, it was first uh, mentioned to me. Uh, I had no idea what it was. I have to say I was immediately suspicious. My BS detectors went, went off immediately. <laughs> street epistemology, you know, uh, and then when I heard uh, a little more about what it was about, I thought, okay, so this is going to be the atheist's version of Saiten Ruben Cates. I was my concern too, story. I'm not going to lie. Um, and, but uh, then I started watching some of these videos and I had a few conversations with uh, uh, with Anthony and and I have to say, I'm enormously impressed with with what you're modeling. And I think that that's the, the, the right word to use. You're, you're modeling, you're showing, you're demonstrating how to have these very open-ended conversations and they give rise to whatever they give rise to. But uh, this is this is sort of skepticism and and critical thinking being being taught in a kind of natural organic way, uh, not in a dry lecture hall. You know, you know, here are some fallacies and this, these are inference rules or anything like that. You're just getting people to sort of think about the relationship between what they think is true and why they think it's true, and then and uh, you know, bringing to light whether or not that makes any sense in light of everything else they already believe and how how they think about everything else. Um, I don't think that there's anything pernicious or or, or, or sneaky about that. I, I think it's, it's uh, and if you look at the manner in which these these conversations go, I mean, most of the time, um, uh, you know, Anthony and, and the others who are doing this, 
are incredibly polite, incredibly civil. They are, I mean, they're confronting people, they're confronting them with their own incredulity, but they are not being combative. And it's enormously successful. I, you see people stop and think, as opposed to just coming up with something uh, on the seat of their, by the seat of their pants or parroting something that they, they've heard. And even when they're parroting something that they've heard, because they're not being told, well, that argument's BS, because they're, they're being asked um, you know, to explain you know, the logic behind something or something like that, um, the, 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 the light of reason is shining on themselves and their own, their own apologetics. And, and that is really, really strong corrosive acid. There's no, no one's ever going to make you doubt your, your, your beliefs more than yourself. Um, and, and the light of reason is the best thing that, that, that can do that. Simply uh, blasting somebody with, with counter-apologetics is, is not very good. You, very often you get a backlash effect, backfire effect, uh, and so you get the, the opposite result of what you might set out. Uh, so I think that, that street epistemologists, as I've, I've seen them in their videos so far, are doing a good job of modeling the kind of conversations that we want to see uh, more of, and it exemplifies uh, uh, the true spirit of skepticism and, and critical thinking. Um, so I would recommend these videos to anybody and anyone who's inclined to take up this approach, um, you know, talk to Anthony and those who are, who are doing it and get some advice on doing it. I don't know that I am myself sort of by my temperament and disposition uh, uh, the best person to go and talk to total strangers on the street. <laughs> That's not really my style. You take the whole um, five minutes. <laughs> and, uh, sorry, sorry, but, but you know, I would, I, I would really recommend anybody give it a try. Uh, yeah, I, I would eat up too much oxygen if, in these conversations. I would enjoy it. I'm not gonna lie. I think I would love enjoying it, but unfortunately, I can never do this by myself. I, 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 I am better in a pair kind of thing. Um, somebody would actually have to be like recording. I, I don't couldn't imagine myself um, by myself engaging like this. I don't, I don't think I have the, um, the, the presence of mind as far as my self-assurity to do that. I could do it online. I have discussions all the time. I love being outgoing online, but in real life. Not so much. I think it takes a very special, <laughs> unique uh, skill set that I see you, know, you having. It's self-control. Once, once yes, you learn this, sure. and, and yeah, it's not for everybody. Uh, Aaron Rod even went out with me once. There's a video. It's on his channel. Oh, God, I would Just love to see Aaron go to Aaron's channel. <laughs> Does he have Aaron actually gave Essie a try. Was it? And, how uh, and if he can give it a try, I think we can give it a try. How'd it go? Somebody likened it. Somebody likened it to lighting a cigarette with a flamethrower. <laughs> So, Arn is larger like. than life. I I have the utmost respect for Arn. He's been in here many many times. Um, I, I mean, me we, we yeah, disagree me too. philosophically, oh, yeah. he's, he's but awesome. I tell you, he is larger he really than life. Character. Shake. What's that? He really gave it a fair shake. And I, I have to just uh, caution everybody: you don't have to be on the street to do street epistemology. Most of these conversations are happening organically when somebody makes a claim and they're familiar with the method. They watched a few videos and they ask a couple of questions, or they happen online. That type of thing. But even if you would never go out and do this, there's no reason why you couldn't try to, oh, uh, um, uh, you know, online or text-based. I found, though, that SE seems easier for myself when I am in front of the person, whether it's a video chat or preferably face-to-face, -face, where I can start looking at body language and, and, and uh, modeling, you know, the gestures that I might want them to, to, to actually demonstrate and that he, type of thing. You definitely get more feedback face-to-face. So, more body yeah I think face to face or... is just way more advantageous uh, for this method but there's no reason why you can't use it anywhere well if somebody thinks that they they want to try their hand at it you know we'll, we'll give it a shot on another hangout where somebody can tell me yeah they want to try it we'll, I'll find somebody they can try it against and then we could kind of run with it and just kind of see how it goes I think it'd be kind of a fun hangout actually 
That'd be great. There's also a chat with a street epistemologist Facebook group where you can go. And if you have a belief that you want somebody to, to use SE on, you can go there and there's, there are hundreds of people in that group that would be more than happy to so have you, that. You chat know, I, I'm in your, I'm in that group. I was nice enough for you. You invited me to that group and I have joined it. Oh, nice. I haven't really participated Good. in it, but you, you want to mind me asking for somebody to maybe come on this, this, this channel of the great Bay community and run a street epistemology, maybe with um, like, for example, I know we have a people in our live chat that would actually be more than willing to yeah. be street epistemologized. I don't know what's the what's the word for. I don't know what word to use for the person being questioned. The, I questioned, guess. I guess. Challenge. There's got to be a better thing, term for that. I always hate doing live demonstrations kind of because if it doesn't go well, You're being um, then the the viewers get the impression that oh wow this is just bunk. I have literally, literally hundreds of examples on my channel, and they're they're as real as you can possibly get. You usually see it from the second the person walks by to me explaining what I'm doing, to them agreeing to pick a topic, to them being questioned and challenged, and then walking away uh, having enjoyed the talk. So um, it almost does a disservice to the method to try to do something on the fly. I know people want to see it, but I'm a little I'm always a little concerned that if it doesn't go well, people will just kind of give up their throw up their hands and not take an interest in it. Yeah, no, and I and I understand that. I think I think this would be more of a, you know, just this, this. I think inter. I, I hate the word entertaining because it shouldn't be just for entertainment. I mean, that's obviously not what street epistemology is for, but it should be informative more than anything else, right? And I think that if I could find somebody that is willing to come on and try it um, on air um, with somebody, it just it, it obviously in a positive light. I, I it's not a, a gotcha type thing, but just see see how it kind of plays out. I think it would be, I think it'd be very interesting mm -hmm. to watch to say the least. Yeah. I mean the, the questions that we tend up tend asking don't vary all that much. Uh, we want to understand what the person believes, why, and how they're so sure. And you can apply that template to pretty much any belief, whether it's a God belief or they think that there's a deceased relative coming back to say hello or their view on karma or a political topic. So um, there's not too much variation which is good and bad. Like it, it's sort of not bad, but these are not the most entertaining videos to watch. Like if people want to be entertained, they would much probably rather watch Aaron argue with Kent Hovind or something. Uh, like I think that. I think it's your definition uh, of entertainment. I find it be entertaining, and I mean that. that means I do too. Like but... I think I think these. I've I've watched my own stuff over and over again, even after I've spent hours editing them, because I think they're just fascinating and and how people are forming these beliefs. Yeah, and then, and then those moment those moments of of wonder where they like, like uh, Ozzy was mentioning, you know, actually seeing people stopping and thinking about these beliefs and how they're so sure. And they're just like that, that, that pause you know, moment, right. And giving them the time to think about that. That is just, that's gold. That is just gold to, to have people modeling how these conversations can be and then other people learning from them. So it's a little discouraging sometimes when I see how few subscribers I do have and how few views these videos do have well, we're going to help um, because, you try to change that, even though you've got far more yeah, subs than I've got. But <laughs> They're not everyone's cup of tea. They're not that exciting, unless you're really into respectful conversation and making a difference. <laughs> but but I think it is a for, different form of entertainment. I mean, I obviously, I have numerous videos on my own channel with, with Hovind um, engaging with people. I mean, I've hosted how many debates now with Kent. I mean, his secretary wants me to debate him, and I just don't. I know that would be entertaining. I know people have asked me to do it. But I have some reservations on that. That's why I have not done it so far, even though I've, I've engaged with him prior on other things. But there wasn't really a, a debate. It was just a discussion like this. But I think the, the term entertaining is, is depending on who wants to get something out of it. And I find the Street Epistemology videos entertaining.
Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.